Good Monday morning. Well, if I'm being honest, this might not should be a Monday musing. So I'll just tell you in advance that you might want to take it in sections because it's going to be a little longer. Or you can always listen to it on our Monday Musing podcast and you can just listen while you drive or listen a little at a time. Um, and I just want to again thank all the precious people that um, help this ministry to make moments like these possible. If the Lord ever lays it on your heart to be a part of what we're doing here, you can always donate on reclaiminghearts.org. But uh Recently, not recently, when Philly and I moved into our home last year, the landscaper told us, he said, uh, listen, he said, the deer out here eat a lot. And when they're through eating in the woods, they come out and they'll eat in your yard. And it was really important to me uh, because we had built this Nantucket style house that I wanted these blue hydrangea. Now, that's a battle in and of itself because Georgia clay turns my blue hydrangeas pink. So now I have various shades of hydrangea from pink to blue and purple in between. So they're very confused right now. But apparently deer love hydrangea. So I had to decide if it was a battle that I wanted to fight. And we put the hydrangea in and... Before we could get the netting over them, we came out one morning and the hydrangea had been feasted on by the local deer. Thankfully, they returned, but the hydrangea did. And the, la the landscaper told us, he said, there are certain things that deer don't like to eat. And azaleas being one of them, certain types of azaleas being one of them. So we tried to plant, for the most part, things that deer don't eat. However, he said something that stuck with us. He said, if deer get hungry enough, they'll eat anything. Well, uh, came out the other day, and the deer had eaten all of the majority of the plants in my planter. He had decimated the monkey grass that some that I had just planted, he had, they had pulled up by the roots. He had, we had a bank of ivy because we needed something to hold the bank up. And he had totally, I say he like it's one lone deer, it's multiple deer. And I always like Bambi, but now I officially, I don't even like Bambi anymore. But they had feasted on the whole bank of English ivy and not only did they pull it up by the roots, it was just virtually gone. And I realized that um, they're just kind of desperate. They're on this feeding frenzy. And it made me think about the enemy of our soul and the times that we're living in and kind of the message that's been on my heart this whole entire month that um, it feels like the enemy is desperate. And so it feels like we're watching him consume things that we've never seen be consumed before. But it also was a great reminder to me that the flesh is never satisfied. And once we start feeding our flesh, thinking we can fulfill or fill ourselves in some way, what we end up finding is the flesh just wants more what the flesh 
wants. And as I've had this on my heart, this certain passage of scripture came up both at church recently and then uh, one of my pastors that I love and fathers of the faith who mentors me, uh, Pastor Dale Everest, he was talking about this on the same scripture on his podcast the other day. So it's very confirming that this was where I wanted to go for just a few minutes if I could. And I want you to kind of keep that picture of those deer. Um, they're now eating things you never thought they'd eat, like azaleas. They took out one of our azaleas. They, um, n they're not supposed to eat snowball viburnum, if you even know what that is. And they, yep, they ate that to the nubs. We're going to just have to pull it out of the ground. But when something gets desperate enough, it, it won't leave anything as sacred. And our flesh is the same. And I go back to what I said a couple times over the last month, whatever we feed will win. So we're just going to have a good old conversation about the flesh and the spirit and about the sin nature that we all have because a lot of times we don't talk about sin much anymore. But my hope is, is that our hearts will be pricked with anything the Holy Spirit might want to deal with with us on or doors maybe we opened or things that we didn't even realize could be damaging our hearts and our minds. And so I want to take us to Galatians chapter 5. You're welcome to open your Bible. That's why I'm saying this might be a Monday musing that you take in small doses. You might want to get out a Bible and a journal and see what God wants to say to your heart and mind. Um, but I'm just going to do what God told me to do and let the chips fall where they may. So it begins with verse four, chapter 4, verse 31, and this particular passage right here is from the Amplified Bible. So then believers, so he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. We who are born again, we who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, meaning when you give your heart to Jesus, there should be a transformation that happens. It's a divine exchange. It's not just a little prayer that we pray. It is an offering of our will to the Father's will. And then it said renewed and then set apart for a purpose. So when we've given our heart to Jesus, that means there's a purpose for our lives. And we have been set apart to fulfill that purpose. And I think some of us need that reminder today. You were set apart for a purpose when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. You weren't set apart just to exist. You weren't set apart to just then go and do whatever you want to do and live however you want to live. You were set apart for a divine and holy purpose. Our, there, we're not children of a slave woman, the natural or the flesh anymore. So this is kind of the metaphor that they're using. But we're of the free woman, of the supernatural. So it's comparing the living to our flesh, like being enslaved in bondage, but living the life of the spirit is like freedom. It's like William Wallace, you know, on the hillside with the army saying freedom. That's what it is. And so chapter five, verse one goes on to say, it was for this freedom that Christ set us free. It's what, it, it's what Christ came for. 
He came so that you and I could know this kind of freedom, not so we would live in bondage. Completely liberating us, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery from whence you were originally moved. He's saying, don't go back. Don't go back to that. We get to choose, but he's telling us to choose life. So he says, verse 16, but I say walk habitually in the Holy Spirit, meaning living. It, it, so this is how it describes it, seeking him and being responsive to his guidance. It's what we've talked about over the last three weeks, paying attention to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, paying attention to what he is um, living a life with him, seeking him, loving the Lord, walking in relationship with him. And then when he leads us and says, ooh, ooh, not that way. Let's go this way. Uh, oh, no, probably shouldn't be watching that. No, we should, probably shouldn't be about to say that. Then it's being responsive to that. And so every time we're responsive to the things of the flesh, the flesh grows. Every time we're responsive to the things of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit grows in us. We can hear more quickly. We move towards more quickly. We live in greater freedom. It's all those things. He says, and then you will certainly not carry out the desire of the sinful nature. So when we're being responsive to it, our heart isn't wanting to move towards things that are sinful. Our heart's wanting to move toward freedom to the things of the of the spirit of the living God who died to set us free. For the sinful natures, nature has its desires which are opposed to the spirit. So our flesh nature, which is our sin nature, lives in complete opposition to our spirit nature because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. And Satan knows it, and so Satan attacks it and goes after it. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 lays the groundwork for everything. And it lays the groundwork to show us how the enemy operates in our life. So he comes to Eve. After Eve and Adam have had this beautiful boundary of love, they've been given all a beautiful Eden. They've been given one little boundary of love inside of all of Eden. Just don't eat of this one tree. Okay? Because if you do, you'll die. He didn't say, if you eat of that, I'm going to kill you because you didn't do what I said, told you to do. He said, no, if you eat of this, you're going to die. That's the consequences of eating of this tree. So I'm trying to protect you in advance and warning you, this will harm you. This is not good for you. And so I love you enough to tell you to stay away from it. So what does Eve do? The message translation says this so powerfully. It, it, so the serpent asks her about it. He, he tantalizes her. He convinces her that God's a liar. And it says when the woman, where does it say this? Okay, ver, verse six. This is a message translation. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she could get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate it. What's the common word in there? She, me. How can I get what I want? So what were the three things that she saw? The three things the enemy always comes at us with, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. He doesn't really have a new plan. He keeps going after the same thing. So whenever you see something that is lustful or makes you hunger for it or crave for it, you can know the enemy's there. Whenever you see something in your, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, whenever you see something and it's unholy or makes you want more or you see something somebody else has and you're envious of it and you covet it or um, you could go down that for a thousand ways or the pride of life. And what's the word there? Pride. And what is pride? It is the completely opposite spirit of Jesus Christ. He wasn't prideful. In fact, he, he tells us what happens with pride. He said, pride goeth before a fall. In fact, Jesus said he humbled himself even to death, to death on a cross. Jesus, the biggest guy in the room, took all of his disciples and he lined them up. And we, when he could have told them all the ways he wanted them to serve him, he took a towel, he knelt down, and he washed their dirty, dusty feet. Where we see pride, we never see Jesus. The two do not coexist. They never have, and they never will. It's not the Spirit of Christ. So that's where Satan attacked her. Galatians goes on to say, and the desire of the spirit opposes the sinful nature. For these two are in direct conflict, direct opposition against each other, so that we as believers do not always do whatever good things we want to do. But if we are guided and led by the Holy Spirit, we aren't subject to the law. It means when we're living a life led by the Spirit, the more we feed our spirit, the more hungry our spirit grows and it wants good things. It wants the things of God. It wants the things that are pure and holy and just and honest and of good report. And if there be any virtue and any praise, think on these things. It wants that. It hungers for that. And then it says this, now the practices of the sinful nature are clearly evident. Now, what does that mean? That means you can see sinful acts. They're, they're evident. You can witness them. You can see them. And this is what they are. It starts off with three that move in the sexual vein. They're fornication, impurity, and sensuality. And I think one of the reasons that people struggle so much with being able to hear the heart of the church when it comes to sexual purity is because sometimes it feels like that's the only type of sin we talk about. If, you know, let's just be real. Sometimes that's the sin that we focus on the most. I think what we fail to miss, number one, is there are a lot of other sins that are really big. But I think what is missed on in the sexual aspect is when those are partake, part, 
partaken of, they have much more and much greater residual effect because it is your soul connecting with someone else's soul in some way. And it also can affect your body. There can be physical consequences to um, sex outside to sex outside of marriage. So fornication, let's define it if we can. What is fornication? Genesis, again, I said it before, Genesis sets up the framework of all of life. And it sets up the framework of how God designed marriage. God designed marriage as a covenant. He designed marriage as a forever lifetime commitment. And I sit here before you as one who um, had that broken. And I know why it breaks God's heart. Because I know how damaging divorce is and, and the wreckage that it leaves behind. But he also made clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. And any kind of sex outside of the confines of marriage is sin. So we can justify it. We can give it all other different kinds of terminology and names. And, and we cannot want to name it for what it is. But if we're believers and the Bible is our guidebook to living in life, then God has set the moral code and the moral compass. And sometimes we may wish there was a different route or a different way. But remember, he tells us sin is bondage. Spirit-filled living is freedom. And the thing I've learned about the enemy is he never tells us the cost of sin. All he ever does is dangle the fruit in front of us but he never tells us the price that we'll pay for it. Never. He never tells us. Next, he said idolatry. And idolatry, and Philly and I were talking about this on the way to church the other day, because, or maybe it was on our way home from somewhere. He said, I feel like God is dealing with me in a place in my life that it, it feels like it's becoming an idol to me. <laughs> Honestly, it was our landscaping. I hope he does it. It was after the deer had eaten everything. He's like, babe, I feel like I'm holding the landscaping like this, and I just need to surrender. An idol can be, anything can become an idol. Anything. Anyone can become an idol. Um, seeking a title or prestige or a name for ourselves can become an idol. Seeking um, a certain amount of money or our money in general can become an idol. Uh, a relationship can become an idol. A person can become an idol. We can make idols of anything. So he says idolatry is feeding our flesh and ultimately it's keeping our life in bondage. Then he uses the word sorcery, which I think is really interesting because this word encompasses a lot more than we think. It encompasses witchcraft. It encompasses pharmacy. It actually comes from the word pharmacy, which is where we get pharmaceuticals or pharmacy. So you can think about drugs and how um, drugs are a gateway door to the enemy in our lives or even astrology. And I thought about these things, what they really do is they speak to the hunger in our hearts, that our heart is wanting something more. It's why people will read horoscopes, because it's like somebody's telling them the future. 
But listen to what the Spirit, this, listen to what Scripture says in Leviticus 18.21. It says, do not turn to mediums or ne ne necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. And what God's saying is, listen, if you start putting these things into your life, witchcraft, drugs, astrology, where you're seeking out words from the universe or words from your, your sign, whatever that may be, um, you're reading your horoscope, we're seeking a word from something or someone other than the Lord. Now, who would want a word from someone else other than the one who created the entire world? Who has a Holy Spirit that can live on the inside of us and speak to us? Who has a word that is Jesus on the page and that can speak life to us? Who would want to know what the cancer horoscope is. That's my sign. Who would want to know what the cancer horoscope is? I used to read those so much when I was young until I realized what the word said, is that I was making my spirit unclean because I'm seeking a word from somewhere other than the creator. And I thought, I'm settling for so much less. When God has a word for me from his word every single day that helps guide and direct my path, Listen to what Isaiah 8, 19, 20 says. This is a message translation, which I thought was really good. I told you, I have a sermon for you today. I could have made it a sermon, but I made it a Monday Musings. So do with it what you will. Cut it up in little bits and chunks or cut it off. But it's just the word of the Lord. Isaiah 8, 19 through 20. When people tell you, try out the fortune tellers, consult the spiritualist, why not tap into the spirit world? Get in touch with the dead. Tell them, no. We're going to study the scriptures. People who try the other ways get nowhere. It's a dead end. Frustrated and famished. See what I was saying? It's a heart hunger. If you're wanting these things, if you're desiring drugs to get the next high, or if you're trying, the, trying to get the horoscope to know what your day is going to be like, what you really have is heart hunger. Jesus died to meet heart hunger. It's why he died. It's why he came. You're frustrated and you're famished. You're still hungry. They try one thing after another. When nothing works out, then they get angry. Cursing first this God and then that one, looking this way and that, up, down, and sideways and seeing nothing. A blank wall, an empty hole. They end up in the dark with nothing. Those things offer us a false God. They are not true. They are deceptive and they are false gods. The ESV in verse 19, it says, And when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the neochromancers who chirp and mutter, should not an, a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? That is like we're moving to dead things to get life. When we have the living God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come to give you life and life to the full. But that's how good the enemy is at deception. That's how strategic he is. Then he goes on to say, hostility, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions that promote heresies 
I don't, I know in my own life, I've never seen a season where the enemy is trying to divide people more and try to create hatred among people, among races, among um, Christians versus non-Christians, among um, Jews and non-Jews. I, I, the enemy, wherever you see these things, wherever you see hostility, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, rage, you're seeing the enemy. You're seeing Satan on display. Remember, it's clearly evident. That's what it said. It said it'll be clearly evident. Go on social media. It's clearly evident. Turn on the TV. It's clearly evident. It's clearly evident, and it's not God, and it's not life-giving. Do those things bring you life? Is that life-giving? When you read spewing or hatred, is that life-giving? When your heart is trying to be divided against your brother or your neighbor, is that life-giving? That's not life-giving. It's exhausting. It's painful. It shouldn't break our hearts. And if it doesn't break our hearts, then we really need to be asking the Lord what's going on in our hearts. Then he says envy, drunkenness. He doesn't say a drink. He says drunkenness. And some of us, it, it's our go-to. It is our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's our, it's our numbing mechanism. It's our Novocaine. It's the thing that's trying to take away or cure whatever the heart hunger is. And again, you keep, keep on needing another one. One doesn't satisfy. Riotous behavior and other things like these. It says, I warned you beforehand, just as I did previously, that those who practice such things, meaning those who make these things a lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a sobering word. I'm telling you, I've been living in this, and I am checking my heart I am asking God to reveal anything in me that needs to be revealed in regards to this. So these are the things that the flesh desires. And again, I say it again, the enemy never tells the price ever. He just dangles the fruit. He never tells the peace it's going to take away. He never tells the bodily price of the cost. He never tells... Um, the relationships it will cost. He just dangles the fruit. But James says this in James 2, 17, whoever then knows what is right to do and does not do it, that is a sin for him. It's one thing if we don't know. That's why I say you might have wanted to cut this off quicker because you might not have known all that stuff. But it's one thing to not know. It's another thing to know and then still do it. It's sin. And we don't like to use that word. Because we don't like to be uncomfortable anymore. We just want everybody to be comfortable. Well, I'm sorry. People are going to die in their comfort and not inherit the kingdom of God. And then I think we need to ask ourselves, am I really comfortable? James 1.27 says this, 
and we quote this often, but we leave out the last part, pure and undefiled religion, the religion that Christ sees is to care for the orphans and widows in their trouble. We know that. Our hearts know that. But there's more. And to keep oneself from the stain of the world. That's the religion that Christ sees when we don't allow the world to infiltrate us. And if you just think of all those words I just read to you, sexual impurity, fornication, idolatry, um, what were, uh, impurity, sensuality, divisions, fractions, envy, fits of rage. Um, do those sound like enjoyable words? <laughs> I think those sound like heavy, dark words. But now I want you to listen to these words. I want you to tell me the difference. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the result of His presence in us, is love. It's unselfish concern for others. It's not about me, 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 and mine, 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 and what I want, and what my truth is, and it's, it's not that. That's not the things of the Spirit. Whether we want to hear it or not, let's just lay it out there. In that beautiful word, love, unselfish, good, it's joy, <laughs> it's inner peace. I mean, it is that kind of peace that's in the way down deepest places of your soul that the storms of life, no matter how hard that wind blows, it cannot touch that deep down space there. And then there's the word patience. It's like, have you ever been around patient people? Like, my husband is so patient. His spirit is patient. He is patient. He is such a joy to be around. And it's not the ability, patience isn't the ability to wait, but it's how we act while we're waiting. And we can get at a red light and I can be like, babe, you, they're just sitting there. You need to beep your horn. He's like, babe, just give them a minute. They're going to see the light. How do we act while we're waiting? Impatience, such a beautiful word. I know we don't like to have it like Jesus to like dig it out in our lives because it often comes through hard ways. But it's so beautiful when it's on display. It's not heavy like all those other words. Listen to those words. Kindness. Don't you love kind people? Goodness. Y'all hear those birds? They, these finches are going crazy over my goodness of leaving them out food. Actually, I think they're being a little snarky with each other because apparently finches are very aggressive birds. So anyway, they're shh. Faithfulness. Don't we 
isn't faithfulness just the greatest gift when you know the people in your life are faithful, that they're going to keep their word, they're, they're going to be faithful to you, gentleness? Don't you love that word gentle? When you're around people that just have a gentle touch and a gentle way, my mom's that way. She just has this gentleness about her. My, my Nashville mom packers that way. I just love. And then self-control. Where somebody can be in a situation or environment. I think about this often with words. When it would be so easy to be ugly. And you're not. And often the person may even expect ugly, but that's not who the Holy Spirit is. He has self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature together with its passions and appetites. That means... We don't feed our flesh. People that walk by the Spirit don't feed the flesh. So, and doesn't that feel light? Isn't that, doesn't that feel like freedom? You've got to admit it. You cannot lie to yourself. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, kindness. Those are just beautiful words, and we all want them in our life. And that is the yoke Jesus wants us tied to. He said, take my yoke. He said, my yoke is so easy and my burden is so light. But that yoke the enemy is trying to yoke you with, that fruit he's trying to dangle in front of you, he's not telling you the cost. But it is costly. So... I just want to ask you, what is your heart hungry for? I want you to take this teaching and just get alone with God and be honest with yourself. Get out a journal. Walk through each of these things. And ask yourself, what is my heart hungry for? Is it hungry for more of the flesh? Or am I really craving for peace and real love and indescribable joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Isn't that what I'm really hungry for? The devil knows how to prey on our flesh. Just like he did with Eve in Genesis 3. He knows how. And he's relentless. He won't stop. He won't stop. But where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And we want your heart free. If you have any questions, any thoughts... Uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us at Reclaiming Hearts. This is what we do. We just love Jesus, and we love people, and we want hearts set free. 
Remember, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is not the heaviness of sin. And he wants that freedom for each one of us. But what we feed, it will.